Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Joan Howarth, Distinguished Visiting Professor of Law at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, William S. Boyd School of Law, and Dean Emerita at Michigan State University College of Law. We will discuss her article, First and Last Chance, Looking for Lesbians in 50s Bar Cases, which is published in the Southern California Review of Law and Women's Studies. So welcome to the show, Joan. Thank you. So I really thought this paper was exceptionally interesting, and I never would have imagined that like a paper like this would even be possible to write in some sense. Uh, and incidentally, it was, you know, you you wrote this paper some some time ago. So I, I wonder if you could just start by introducing listeners to the subject matter of the paper and how you came to realize that it was actually uh, a kind of repository of archival information you could draw on. Sure. The paper is about litigation um, related to the alcohol licenses of gay bars in California, in the Bay Area in the 1950s. And I don't remember how I first came to the particular cases, but I know that part of the, the freedom and the joy that I had in my work as a law professor at that time at Golden Gate in San Francisco was the idea that I really got to follow my own path in terms of whatever I was going to write about. And so this project, like pretty much all of my writing projects was really about making sense of things that mattered to me and using the, the voice of a law professor to be able to do that. And so it is actually interesting to think about the fact that there, for me, it's interesting to think about the fact that I had no restrictions or limitations. I was at that time at that law school, it was a great place for me because there was no scholarly culture, in a sense, to have to fit into. It was I was helping to create that. And so whatever I wanted to do was exactly the right thing to do. And I really was working for myself. So when you wrote this paper, did you feel like the form that the paper ended up taking was unusual among kind of legal scholarship at, at the time. And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about sort of the approach that you took in, in writing the paper. There's, there's a really interesting, very personal voice to it, which I appreciated, but it's also very much a kind of a storytelling piece. The, I wanted to write as a lesbian and as a lesbian law professor whose lesbian identity was important. And uh, I wanted to, so the purpose of the piece was really to honor the men and women who were uh, who had come before, right, in gay and lesbian life. And so the goal really was to elevate honor in some way, those, those people. And then the next goal was to try to think a little bit more about what the, the category of gay and lesbian means, right? And um, so I was 
purposefully provocative in the piece about pushing against that as a category, pushing against the boundaries. So I had, I think the probably the most, I don't know if anything in a law review article can be called outrageous, but if I can claim that, the most outrageous part was probably what I used about J. Edgar Hoover in a completely unauthorized um, biography and sort of scandalizing, purposefully scandalizing biography of J. Edgar Hoover. There was language about um, some outrageous behavior by uh, J. Edgar Hoover. And so I was sort of using J. Edgar Hoover and the men and women in these cases and me as a, as a, a group that had mainly differences <laughs> but that are all part of what we think of as uh, this category of gay and lesbian. And so that's, that's, I think, part of what was unusual about what I was trying to do. So maybe you could talk then a little bit about the cases that you used to structure the narrative in the piece. Sort of what happened in those cases? Who were they about? What were they about? And sort of how were they approached institutionally by the courts deciding these, these, these licensing questions? So the, the sort of rhetorical theme that I used, I guess, was to start with focusing on the today's ear outrageous language of the decisions. So the cases talk about sexual perverts, and there is a whole theme in the cases about contamination and the importance of using the policing powers to rid the community from these sexual deviates, sexual perverts. And so there's a way in which I exaggerate the use of the terms by talking about the category human being as a, as a generic category that sexual perverts do not fit into. And so part of the, so part of the uh, challenge, I guess, and this is talking with you now, however many years later, 20-something years later, I think, since whenever this was published. It's the first time I've ever talked with anybody about this piece because it's not as if this project had a big impact, right? Um, I have no idea how many people have actually read it. And nobody has read it probably as carefully as you, right? So the conversation we are about to have on this article from the 90s, I think, is the first time right, that, we've, that anybody has had this conversation about this article. So you're pushing me to think more about what I was doing than I ever had before. But part of the challenge is to not be overwhelmed by the cruelty of the court's languages, language, the, the, um, the astonishing cruelty and the power of law. Um, sometimes almost just flippantly or um, just without any kind of um, self-awareness, some of the language that's in the details of the cases is, is um, astonishingly terrible. 
And so the challenge is to somehow bring that down in a way, I think, by ridiculing it. And that's, just, that's part of what I think I was doing at that time, is trying to give it less power by, by making it seem even more ridiculous than it might seem on its own terms. That definitely came across. But another thing that really came across powerfully to me as well were the kind of vivid personalities of the people who were the kind of real subject of these licensing procedures and, and investigations, despite the sort of cruelty and dismissiveness of, of the judicial opinions. Like, you, I really got a sense of, like, kind of at least a glimpse of what those people were like and the kind of lives that they lived. There were a couple of the characters, if you will, if we're thinking of it almost as a, um, a story or a play or something. Some of the characters were heroic, and all of them were ordinary. And that's what's interesting. They were in a, a world in which there was apparently a lot of kindness and uh, in the midst of all of the oppression that they were facing. And I found that to be um, extraordinary, right? Just these are people whose lives deserve to be in some kind of a record. And some obscure law review article in a, a wonderful but relatively obscure law journal is at least something. It's not all that they deserve, but it's at least something. It was fun for me to go to the state archives to get as much as I could get of the records of the cases, which I did. I had forgotten what it was like to think about uh, lawyering in the 50s, but just the onion skin carbon copied briefs and the, um, the mechanics of our trade that were in play were part of what was interesting to me. And, but then in the context of the transcripts, as is in the article, there were little stray remarks about the under, one of the undercover women, for example, who was in one of the bars. And, and the transcript would include some something maybe from a police report or something like that about uh, one of the women in the bar being disappointed that Marge turned out to be a police officer because she was, I, I quite liked her, right, was the, um, the kind of the kindness to it. It wasn't, there was an incredibly generous spirit in some of those comments. And also, of course, the details give you the richness who would imagine that anyone would think it was a good use of public resources to send an undercover woman into a lesbian bar most days for three months? Astonishing. Astonishing. And so that was part of what was interesting about trying to tell some of those stories. The other part that was interesting to me was the Wiley manual part. 
Wiley Manuel was a very important African-American lawyer and judge in California who made history from being appointed to the court in California and deserves honor and respect fully for what he was able to do. And it's also true he turned up as the attorney general attempting to uphold the denial of licensure in, in at least one of those cases with very disturbing language about the homosexuals, so-called, who were the problem that the state needed to be addressing. And I think that's particularly valuable because we're all um, good at some things and not so good at other things. And the I think it's quite possible to give somebody honor for what is honorable and impressive and remarkably wonderful in someone's life at the same time that we can be critical and hold up some of what they represented in terms of the weaknesses of their lives and the weaknesses of their time. I agree more. I think that really comes across in the article. Uh, and in light of that, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the research process uh, for this piece, because I, as someone who does a lot of historical work myself, I felt the amount of work that went into writing this article. And I could tell that you had really gone to look for sources that other people might not have looked for. And I guess it just really strikes me that doing that provides a kind of richness and depth that's often missing in law review articles, especially ones about historical cases. The richness is in the details. I remember, oh boy, this has been a while, so my memories are hazy, but I think I called every attorney I could find who had been part of it. I call, I tried to find other people. I didn't have much luck finding the main people in the cases. But I think I found one of the attorneys and that the conversation with the one attorney who I was able to find was very satisfying because he was a straight guy who had stumbled into this work in some odd way and had taken it seriously and done a great job. And he, when I called him out of the blue, I don't know, 20 years later, whatever it was, it was a rewarding conversation for him because somebody out there, again, an obscure law professor at an obscure law school writing a very obscure article had found his work and was giving him credit for work that was not easy at that time. And that was, um, that was meaningful to him. And so whatever else came from it, that was a good result from my perspective. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the actual litigation and litigation strategy as well, because it, I mean, I felt exactly what you're just describing. Like this was 
there was something really interesting there. And I wonder how you think about sort of what you saw about how that lawyer and the other lawyers in these cases approached these, these lawsuits and the sort of later and recently very successful uh, civil rights litigation in relation to gay rights. One of the themes of the article is the lack of self-representation that the layers of other people uh, filtering the experience of the uh, lesbians who were at the heart of the story were multiple. And that was in the, every layer of the, of the litigation. And because there were no, the, the, the plaintiffs weren't the people being arrested. The plaintiffs were the bar owners who were, in some cases, scurrying happily to disassociate themselves and pretend that they had they they had no idea that this was a gay bar they were running, and when they had once been caught calling it gay, they meant happy. So those were the clients, and they were the best, right, in this whole constellation of decision makers related to these cases. So it's a pretty good example of a legal system that is relentlessly and uh, relentlessly and not even noticing dehumanizing the people who are the main subject of the cases. And it's not hard to connect that dehumanization with the kind of language and the offhand cruelty that we see in some of the decisions and some of the arguments. So part of what's great for me in my career is to have been able to watch and to a tiny extent participate in the movement of having lesbians and gay men become part of the legal profession in order to represent ourselves. And that is something that changes the process that changes the results, it changes the whole sense of what's happening. The civil rights advances, which are extraordinary in the LGBT world, in, in law, are incomprehensible in some level For it, when you read these cases from the 50s. And the, the fact of the legal profession itself becoming less hostile to lesbians and gay men was a precondition for any of these other civil rights advances, I think. Yeah, I think one thing that really struck me reading your essay was how it so kind of vividly brought to life, like one small sliver of what it was like to be a lesbian at that point in time in that particular place and the kind of the way that the people you describe were talked about and the way that they talked about themselves it was like it was like seeing it was like seeing something forgotten and like reviving at least one little glimmer of what that lived experience was really like there was an important literature at the time that I wrote this law review article that had emerged about lesbian life historically in the United States 
and the books that I was reading in a sense for pleasure that are cited, I think, in the footnotes were part of the inspiration to think more deeply about these cases from California. And I think part of what would be interesting to folks today about this particular set of stories is that this is the Bay Area of California. This is the gay Mecca. This is a place that in the 50s, lesbians and gay men were coming to, were drawn to, because of its relative freedom. And still, even there, the city of Oakland had laws that made it, is it possibly true, it was criminal to have three articles of clothing of the wrong gender on? Does that mean that Oakland, San Francisco, this is not what we think of as the backwater, desperate areas of uh, gay and lesbian oppression. But that's what was happening in what, what I was writing about is what was happening in Oakland and San Francisco. So we can only imagine what was happening in other parts of the country at the same time. I, I noticed that when I was reading the article that you had these really interesting references to a range of kind of non-law publications that really seem to inform the voice and perspective of the article. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and whether maybe you have thoughts about how other legal scholars might kind of use interdisciplinary, to put it broadly, kind of scholarship in the same way to inform the work that they're doing and better understand the sort of meaning of what the kind of the social problems that they're writing about. Legal scholarship suffers if it's isolated from the rest of the world, which it often is. And I think I had the advantage of having a culture, kind of a lesbian subculture, that I inhabited and inhabit to the extent that that culture still exists, which is another interesting question. But at the time that I wrote this, at the time that I went to law school, in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s, I had one foot in being a law professor and I had one foot in being a part of a women's culture that was a lesbian culture. So when I became a law professor, if somebody said Dworkin, I assumed they meant Andrea, not Ronald, right? And that was a really valuable place to be situated because it meant that I brought some skepticism to the pre-existing world of legal education and, and legal scholarship. And it also meant that I had other worlds to draw on. So it would be a mistake to think of those other references in the work as, as references that I looked for for research. It was That was what I was reading. That was what I was... Uh, that was how I was understanding the world. Those were important parts of my life and my identity and my culture. And so the, a little essay like this is as much an attempt to make sense of my life as anything else. I mean, on some level, it, it felt like a version of, you know, critical legal scholarship 
broadly construed that sort of frankly predated my entrance to to the legal uh, scholarship field, but that I saw as a young person and that I think interestingly is coming back today. And one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you about this paper is that I think it does a lot of things that junior scholars could, could learn from today and that would enrich the kind of work that people are producing right now. Thank you. That's very generous. When I am lucky enough to be able to go back at some of my work that I had done such a long time ago that I've now mainly forgotten it, and it seems good, the explanation that it was good is that I was writing for myself. And that is an extraordinary privilege. And I took full advantage of it. So the writing about all these uh, subjects that were of interest to me was, was great because I could bring my full self to it. And when I have been in a position, which I often have been, of trying to give advice and, and encouragement to junior scholars, I always want to know what do they care about? What are they passionate about? What are they, what's the difference they want to make with their writing? Or even just what is it they want to learn for themselves? Because none of us can do our best work if we're trying to do it for somebody else's specifications. Yeah, I feel like it's so common to, you know, to hear people say, oh, well, you know, what's the normative takeaway or whatever, you know, what's the thesis, what's the argument? And reading your essay, I felt like the thesis was these stories matter and deserve to be memorialized and told. And that's all you need. I think that's right. That's all you need. And I'm going to do my best to honor them by doing this respectfully and with some Whatever I can bring in terms of my own style, my own uh, values, I will bring to it. And that's the purpose of it. And that's why it's exciting and fun to do. And it's almost uh, secondary that what happens with it. It's certainly, for example, what I'm trying to do is something I think of as much larger than anything that would fit on a metric of scholarly impact. Um, Because... I'm trying to do something very different. And it, it makes me sad to see scholarship or legal scholarship shrunk down as if they become more, it becomes bigger if you can just give it a number. It's so strange and sad, but, um, but I understand that's the world that we're living in, but I'm very uh, happy to not have had to live in that world for myself most of my career. Well, Joan, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this excellent essay. Uh, I really hope listeners will check it out because it's a great paper. The stories are amazing, and we only had a chance to really kind of talk obliquely about a lot of them. So um, I really encourage people to check it out. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate it. And as I said, we should all just hope that somebody is interested in what we write 25 years later. It's pretty exciting for me. So thanks a lot.
Marty. Nan, try to take me if you can. Because I just called up to say, in Blackstone's own unusual way, that I'm ragged tonight, dear. That's right. I just called up to tell you that I'm ragged but right. And a gambler and I'm drunk every night. I eat a porterhouse steak three times a day for my board. It's more than any ordinary girl can afford. I got a big electric fan to keep me cool when I sleep. A big handsome man to play around with my feet. I'm just a gambling woman, a rambling woman, drunk every night. I just call up to tell you that I'm ragged but right. Roll over, baby, you're better on the other side. Thank <laughs> you. 